Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. <laughs> this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of going where no man has gone before because nobody's ever done it before. This week we are speaking about future adventures. And the reason this topic has come up is because I am now running a campaign in Fringeworthy in the later it was called the uh, the late campaign, which is after they've discovered all kinds of great things and they've st- brought back lots of technology to Earth, and now things are pretty futuristic, or at least they're starting to become. And I noticed that I was having a hard time coming up with science fiction adventures that I thought were really science fiction. I mean, there was plenty of stuff where we were, you know, we were all geared up with all kinds of our, you know, our long range sensors, our robots, our drones, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And going to yet another primitive world or some other world which had a disaster, you know, which I guess is okay because, I mean, we all want to be the godlike creatures coming in and, 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 and granting the goodness to the people that we run into. I mean, that's kind of the part of playing these kinds of games is the hero aspect of it. But at the same time, I was like, well, yeah, but I want to be able to go to a world where it's really science fiction, where the end of our promo with Blick says where you do this and this and then you battle out with lightsabers on the bridge of a starship. And I'm like... I've never done that. Why have I never done that? So that's why we have this topic. What's keeping us from doing those science fiction adventures? Uh, you know, and what can we do about it? Yeah, actually, when I ran my first campaign, Fringeworthy, I did set a game on a pl- planet that was basically far in advance of of Earth. It was Earth. But it was like they had advanced far in advance of what they had available on on Earth Prime, and the players were buttheads. And I this is one of the few games where I basically had fifty percent casualties of the players because of that. It had nothing to do with the setting. It was just because your players weren't good players. Yeah, they decided that they were going to be buttheads and and go and tweak the nose of the guy in the power armor. Right. Okay. Well. If you like running adventures where you're in the past and, and, and alternate Earths that are present day, that's fine. But the main reason, you know, that I think that most people, if they've been following along with all the things that we've been saying so far, the reason that they don't play science fiction type adventures most of the time is because they're afraid of wrecking their campaigns. Because ultimately, the goal of Fringeworthy is for you to bring back advanced technology to Earth to solve its problems. And most of the worlds that you run into that are going to be high technology are going to be better than us. And you're going to have this really huge technological chunk that's going to come back, hit the Earth, and possibly destroy its, its, its culture, its, its economies, a lot of stuff that we're, you know, that we know would be very much caused by problems. One of the reasons why a lot of times technology doesn't get spread out on the earth very quickly in fringeworthy campaigns is because we're afraid of too much technology too soon. And it's kind of hard not to do that if you run into a lot of advanced worlds. Well, yeah, the whole thing with uh, technology, yeah, the technology may be there. Let's say, okay, fringeworthy, I'm going with the D20 parlance as I do. Fringeworthy, even in the beginning, is very, very early PL6, which would be fusion age. I mean, just beyond our current technology. The Termelern, their tech would be considered, let's see, the PL9, but they do biotech, the PL10. So you've got a 4PL disparity there. You can have the technology, but without the ethics that goes with having 
gone along each step of creating that technology, that's going to cause a problem with the people. If you have something that can create gold instantly and you bring it back to Earth Prime, that's going to collapse all the financial markets. Or something that creates foodstuffs, that's going to create, that's going to destroy all the agricultural markets on Earth Prime. So yeah, bringing in technology is bad for setting, and also a game master who brings in too high a tech into a game, it'll destroy the game as far as rules and as far as play. Because if you have uh, people with bullets and all of a sudden you're bringing in disintegrator rifles made of biotech, yeah, you're gonna your characters are going to walk through anything you throw at them. So you have to watch what type of technology you bring in. That's probably an, another reason why people are hesitant on running uh, future futuristic campaigns. In Frenchworthy, the default setting is that early setting. I mean, all the stuff that's written to it. I mean, our podcast is the only thing that's really gone beyond it. Almost all of the adventures that have been uh, written extant, the books themselves, they're all still talking about those very early days, and there really isn't any resources that come with the Fringeworthy game that says, hey, this is how you handle high-tech type adventures. This is how you write them. This is how you make them successful and how you keep them from wrecking your campaign. Yeah, the D20 Fringeworthy started in on that. It, it touches on it very lightly with the expansion of the canon into middle campaign, late campaign, and very late campaign, you know, 120 years in, in the future. So we've just begun the tip of the iceberg with the D20 supplement. All right, so let's assume that we are actually talking about, you know, the late campaign, where issues of breaking the world by bringing technology back isn't going to be that much of a problem. Now we're talking about us going out and actually having science fiction adventures on science fiction type worlds or portals. We want to do this. As the GM, you want to write this kind of adventure. And so what are the things you're going to have to go over? And we touched a little bit on this on size and super tech and things like that, but to really write a science fiction adventure that is a science fiction adventure, what's got to be in it? When I'm reading good science fiction or I see a good science fiction movie, and I've done a bit of research on this because I was, I'm, I'm in the midst working on some, some writing, some science fiction type writing, and I listen to a lot of podcasters, a lot of writers who, who write science fiction a lot. Key element to science fiction is to not focus on the science too much. You know, some of your authors do this, and, and it's okay. But but your really good science fiction, you think about the stuff that you really like. It's about introducing some aspect of science that will change human nature or change, I'm sorry, change the human landscape. And then the story itself, the adventure itself is how does that affect us? How does that affect human beings? How do human beings react to this new thing? So, for example, if you introduce cloning, you know, a lot of stories have cloning um, – aspects to them and the story when you when you watch the story what, what is it really about it's really it's not it's not about how they made the clones it's not about the technology that went into the clones Th that's not important it's it, you just say we have clones the important part the best part of the story is how did that affect the characters so i think when you're doing your and it has this play into adventures because that's what we're talking about bringing the awesome to our adventures i think what that plays into our adventures are is that you know, you don't want to give the players too much. You want to kind of feed them little bits of information at a time, but you also want to make sure that you, you, you know, you, you have some notes and you develop some of your social aspects of the society that they're going to be involved in, and you make sure that the characters around them react the way you think they should. So, take for example, cloning. They go to another world where cloning is cool, and they decide, you know, maybe I should get a clone made of myself in case something happens to me, right? And then... You know, a big part of the adventure is when they come back and, you know, Idette finds out that they, you know, that they had clones made of themselves and the stigma that goes with that and the, and the repercussions of all of, you know, all of the, the ethical issues and stuff. I think that adds richly to any good science fiction. Yeah. And it also depends whether you're talking full, you know, the clones the same age as they are, or basically they have Junior with them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And bring it home to mom to raise. Both of those aspects will bring about different points of view. 
the idea of cloning, which has been in a lot of stories, is how does the clone relate to you? Right. Is it your property? If you make three clones of somebody, does that make that each individual clone less valuable as a person because right. you've got spares? Right. You know, does the original become devalued because there's now possibly healthier versions of himself because that this one was fast grown and is was fed the best nutrients and here right. you are as a matter of fact you could your clones could all be like a, a half a foot taller than you because they all had better nutrition right or genetic modifications uh post cloning yeah so all of a sudden they're looking at you as grandpa because you're this feeble version of themselves also you know as you said Bruce, also it could be considered all you know people they all have their their individuals. They all have and have normal rights, at least in the world where they were cloned on. Uh, that, that may change elsewhere. Or elsewhere, they may simply decide that they are just simply unpeople and they have no rights. In time enough for love, the whole Heinlein future series, they had cloning. That was one of the ways that the people who were eternal just kept the Methuselahs kept going. They they had vats and they had people growing in them. And whenever the one body the, that they were currently in got damaged too badly, or if they needed extra parts, eh, they just moved stuff over, threw away the rest of it. And nobody ever said a word in any of those stories about that. Listen for Lazarus Long, who just lived long. No, no, he had clones. He, I thought he lived naturally long. He I, did, but occasionally he need parts fixed. He he needed stuff to be replaced from time to time. He went through he went through rejuvenation a number of times. So you've got the society who has clones. They've developed them, so their society has evolved with that. So there, it's not an issue. They know how to deal with. It. They've worked out all the legal stuff, all the ramifications, all the morality issues. Or their choices. Their choices have been made. Well, sure. Yeah. But when you come back to iDebt, you are injecting this this volatile thing into a society that is like not prepared to deal with this. We don't have laws for it. We don't have – we have not addressed it morally. We have not made those decisions and you're just cramming it down their throat. I mean take for example, you go to that world. You have a clone made or you're hurt so bad that they make a clone of you and dump your brain into that clone, and everybody knows that what came back is is a clone of you. But, I mean, it's you, right? Well, maybe. I don't know. How's IDEC going to see that? How's the team going to see that? How's your priest going to see it? Right. Yeah, that's another thing you want to bring. I mean, you don't want to bog it down with a, um, a religious battle at the table, but the religious ramifications. Oh, yeah, that could be, that could be massive. Yeah, yeah, or or when whether you talk about legal, okay, so you have a new body grown. Your your either your memories are transferred to it, or you as you said, they scoop your brain out and stuck it in the other one. However, is are you the same person legally, or are you a new person? Remember, your fingerprints will not match. It doesn't matter how many times you clone somebody; their fingerprints will be different. Is it live or is it Memorex? Yeah. But but then it, 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 it could go deep. You could go way down this rabbit hole. You go back to Idet, and Idet is saying, oh, wait a minute now, hold on. So they made a clone of you. Well, how do we know they didn't, like, implant something into the clone? Or, you know, how can we can we, can we we trust this clone? I mean, did they implant some kind of, like, you know, what was that movie where the guy had, like, a, a, psych, uh, a mental trigger and he, and he shot the president? Oh, uh, the, the the Manchurian candidate. That's Manchurian clone. Yeah, how do we know he's not the Manchurian clone? You know, there could be all kinds of issues. And did they stop at one? They have a fr- if, if they can clone a fringe worthy person, and the clone is fringe worthy, which is Holy very problematic. Crap. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, are the clones fringe worthy? Yeah. Well, I was kind of ignoring that aspect of it, so you could bring them back home. Richard Richards already said that t- twins are not automatically fringe worthy together. Right. Yeah, we've so. always said that. But hold on, wait, wait, wait. Let's say, real quick, so the fringe system is smart. We already know this, and we know it's, it's some kind of mechanism. It makes the, it, somehow it like makes the decision. So what if they clone you, they transfer your brain or essence or whatever you want to call it over, right? Then your original body dies, and the fringe system goes, oh, yeah, it's just you. It's cool. Come on. It could be. 
it, it might do that because it might say, well, there, it, 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 it's you. It's, you know, I let you through before and, you know, because it is an intelligent system. It's not, it's not ones and zeros. Wait a second. If you use that cloning system that was used in Crichton in Farscape, which is basically, it wasn't a clone. It was just another Crichton. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Oh, Carvac, yeah. Yeah. If it has a system like that where it's really, it's not a clone. It is another you. Twinning. That's right. Yeah. 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 That person is fringeworthy. Because he's, if you look at fingerprints, the same, everything the same. And and there's there's all kinds of permutations. Of this, I mean, you got the whole Kirk thing, the Kirk thing with the transporter split him in two, which was goofy, but whatever. Let's say, I mean, it's it's, you know, it, it it's fringe worthy. It could happen. Um, would would those two be able to go through the fringe path? P- probably, maybe. Yeah, they they were both still Kirk. Yeah. So you got that. I mean, that that that's a whole thing. So you know, a lot of these things would come up. And, and Bruce, this, this let's getting back to your point. What makes for good sci-fi? There it is. There's your sci-fi. See all this stuff that we're doing here. That's it. That's what your story needs to have. How science affects the human condition. Well, actually, it's even more based on that. It's it's something that Hugo Gernsback used to tell his writers: change one thing, and then extrapolate from that point. So you go to a post-scarcity uh, world where there, you know, you want to work, you can do it. For however long you want to do it, then you can stop doing it. You know, work isn't important. It's post-scarcity. They were, you basically the machines take care of everybody, and you know that there's your world. And how do you deal? And how what is the uh, capitalistic doing player? I'm not taking fringe with the player's got to be a capitalistic player coming into this world. And how is he going to feel about all these people basically not doing anything? You know, they're just doing whatever they want to, and the machines take care of everything else. Well, not only that, but it also, if you want to do something, now you can't pay somebody to do it. You can't just say, you can't just wave a bar of gold in front of somebody and say, okay, I need some, I need 50 guys. Who wants to join up my team to help me do what my project? And they're like, yeah, see you later. Right. Now, now you have to engage in this huge PR campaign to make it worthwhile. You have to engage the minds and the hearts of these people to get them to work with you on your project. You know, and that's a big sea change for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is a post-change universe. It may also be one where changing the body. Oh, I feel like being a furry today, and you're a furry today. You know, you got the ears, tails, everything, you know, or I want to be an amphibian. Now you're an amphibian. And it's one of those things where it's that kind of change is easy to do. Oh, there was a special on Discovery Channel with Am Savage about longevity. And they basically came down to, they basically swapped brains out between bo- different bo- different body mods. Mm. You know, basically like, it's like a ghost in the shell. You know, right. You know, you, know, you just you take your cyber brain, plug into a new body and go and do something new. Well, yeah, the whole thing about things like cloning and the longevity, the term would be anti-geria treatment. That alone, just the government would look and go, we got to pay this idiot Social Security for how long? Yeah. Something like that comes in play. And just the government be like, uh, no, we're not paying this guy Social Security for the next 120 years. I don't think so. That's another one of those ramifications when you bring in a technology. How is it going to affect the setting? I mean, it may not deal with the players, but that's still something you got to think about when you do that. Well, you also got to expect that back at Earth Prime, even though it's, say, 100 years later, you're still going to have places in the middle of India that have no electricity or running water, or places where they're still living as they did for the uh, hundreds of years ago. We still have that. We have that right now. Well, yeah, we have that now, but I doubt 100 years from now we're going to have... Because isn't one of the things for the Commonwealth, which IDET wants to copy, is everybody is at an equal standard living. You're not going to have that disparity anymore? No, there just has to be a minimum standard of living. Oh, okay. All right. And and theoretically, that minimum standard of living is a good one. Or or whatever the person wants. I mean, that's the other thing, too. You know, that person living in India, they may be completely happy with with their current lifestyle. They don't want... But you want to give them. There's also s- social political issues. I mean, you're you're talking about oh, we're going to give you all this stuff, but you know that hasn't always worked in the past, and not everybody wants it. They might say, nah, you know what? We see what that does to people. So when you create these adventures, 
part of this is probably going to be creating a human deviant culture. That's going to be something that the GM's going to have to do. And that's a, a challenge. It's real easy to go and say, oh, let me just think about all the different cultures that existed on the world today. Pick one. Okay, throw it on a world, do a little you know, twist. Hey, we've got, we've got an adventure. But now you're talking about a futuristic world where theoretically you're using some thought about how it got there. And it's going to be different from Earth. Otherwise, it's not, it's not going to seem science fiction-y or fantastical. If it's just the same old, same old that you've had every other world that you've gone to or just a mirror of one of the cultures on Earth itself. So let's, go, let's take a topic like IDs and, and surveillance and so forth and say if this goes on. So now you're in a, in, on an Earth where this has gone on now for 200 years and your French step, step through, they're not in the database. No one knows how they got where they got there. They're pretty much in big trouble because they're not registered. Their DNA is not registered anywhere. Their brain parents are not registered anywhere. Who the heck are you? Where'd you come from? And they'll interrogate you and you'll tell them. Not because they'll torture you, but because they have access to technology and equipment that'll just make you simply talk. And they'll think you're insane because of what you say at that point. That's right. You're not lying to us. You're insane. Yeah. <laughs> well, that can happen. But other type of cultures, I think, would be possible, especially cultures that are informed by the technology that they have. Time and time again, we talked about how, you know, in the, in the 50s and the 30s and the 20s, they all said, this is what the future is going to be like. And it isn't. Not one time did they get it right. No. <laughs> But there was a movie back made back in the 30s about the future. And one of the things they had was the baby machine. A couple walks up and says, oh, look, I, let's have a baby, dear. Okay, what color do you want to hair? Blonde. And they just picked up a chart and then, bing, boop, there was a baby. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, other than the time element, that's actually very realistic. That's quite plausible in the near future. Well, I'll I tell you, you know, I think one of the guys who did get it right was uh, Heinlein in um, The Moon is a Harsh, Mish, Harsh Mistress. A lot of the stuff he talked about is still very valid. I mean, like the way he talked about computers, that's how we're using them today. We're still using them the way he talked about how they would be used. Could you explain what that was? All right, so it was like the center of the communications and operations uh, of the moon base that they lived on it it was basically the the center of all communication and the only thing that he kind of made up about it was popping into sentience now of of course it's a much more advanced computer and maybe that'll happen maybe it won't but uh the 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 uses how they used the computer what they used it for was really right on the fact that the the moon base was built inside you know under under the surface of the moon that's how it's going to be done if it's done if we're going to if we build a moon base that's how we'll build it and the fact that loonies were trapped if you spent too much time there or you were born there you could not return to the gravity well called earth no yeah. no you'd be right because of the the muscle deterioration the lack of gravity and, and the fact that you know the, the way they they mined water on the moon he wrote that in like I think it was '68, okay. And what they've been finding about about water on the moon is 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 how he wrote it. I mean, the the man was brilliant. It is just so well done, and I I personally think that it is probably one of the best predictive books of the future that I have ever read. Uh, 1966 was written in. Okay, right. So I was pretty close, but yeah, that's I mean that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. All right. So, you know, one out of a thousand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but he was he was a brilliant writer. I right. mean, he, he knew his stuff. Yeah. Broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> he was a graduate of Annapolis, so he had a, he had a background in engineering. Yeah. He, yeah. He was a scientist. Yeah. He, he was an engineer. You're right. Okay. So I'm saying is it, it's going to be hard creating this future tech uh, culture. Because you want it to be different than our regular Earth. Otherwise, it really isn't science fiction. You know, uh, I mean, we don't want it. Of course, you don't want it to be too divergent. Then you lose the ability to empathize with the characters, the NPCs that you're going to be dealing with. That, that's a, a thing that it takes practice with. And then we 
we go and we say, okay, but now let's add alien cultures to it because you know, there may be aliens. This may be a, a, a solar or galactic culture that has had contact with aliens. Now what happens? And that's another piece that has to be added in. And, and we don't want to do it the Star Trek way, which is to take a human being and put a bug on her nose and say, hey, that's an alien. What are the good ways of creating an alien culture so that people can, can add that to their world? Uh, Scott Sigler, the way he wrote Aliens in his GFL. What is the GFL, sir? Oh, I'm sorry. All right, so GFL is the Galactic Football League. Ah. So he wanted to write a football novel set way in the future. And it sounds goofy, but he really pulled it off. But one of the things that he did, and, and when I've talked to him about this, he, he wanted to make aliens that were alien. He didn't want to make them, like you said, uh, a human with a bug on his nose or a bump on his forehead or something like that. His aliens are very different. And he goes deep into the culture of these aliens and why their worlds are the way they, were, way they are. I just think if you want to read a really good representation of, uh, of a, a novel series where – um, aliens who are definitely alien have been brought in and done well. Um, uh, the, the Scott Sigler's books, the GFL and, and the Crypt, are two great series for that. Does anybody else have some good examples of alien cultures? Ender's Game. Hal Clement with the Mescalins. The Old Man series by John Scalia, I think, was is a, a good example of having a lot of different alien cultures. Uh, C.J. Cherry and her series... Uh, especially the one that takes place aboard the alien spacecraft with the you know, human occupant, basically written all from the point of view of the aliens. You know, they're basically, they're, they're, no, they're felines. Got a name for that? Is it, is it the Chaneurs? Chaneurs Pride, yes, Chaneurs. The Chaneurs series. Well, the Chaneurs are basically, you know, lion templates. The Kif are really weird, and there's some other aliens that, you, you you see, and it's like we well we we talk to them, and they talk back, and sometimes we understand what they're saying, you know, especially the ones that live in methane and hydrogen. They're really weird and odd creatures, uh, but yeah, they you know, they did come up with a series. She did come up with a series of aliens that were fairly, uh, yeah. She wrote it from a point of point of view of a carnivore, and you know, we think, well, humans are carnivores. No, we're omnivores. We you know we eat anything. Okay, anybody else? Um, and of course, there's Larry Niven with his with the Kazin and the Puppeteers, which he, which have been much more examined over time. And it turns out humans are aliens too, but that's a spoiler. How about how about you, Trav? Any thoughts? I uh, wish I could. No, nothing comes to mind as far as a book series that. So this is tough. This is one of those areas I think that probably, you know, the GM needs to put some work into some research, not necessarily creating them on his own, but just to go and, and maybe do some reviewing of some books to see who actually does write good aliens. And so that when he does bring an alien into a situation where they're interfacing with a human population in a science fiction setting, that the reactions between the two are full of misunderstandings, not because they're not trying to understand each other, but because they literally are coming from a different point of view and culture that is might be incompatible with each other. Yeah, David Brin is another good one with his Uplift series. I've read that series, and I wasn't really impressed with the aliens in that one. Yeah, I liked the books. I'm just saying I didn't find the aliens that alien. It was a Sooners series. Where, uh, you got to understand, David Brin, there's a galactic confederation, best way to call it, uh, that controls where you can go. And there's worlds being left fallow. So that they can, you know, they, they can become home for a new for a new race. Well, there's this there are these groups known as Sooners, who basically sneak in and settle on these worlds uh, illegally. Basically, they're planetary squatters. Wow. Yes. Yeah, they're getting there sooner than everybody else. I think that's the joke. Bright, Brightness Reef, Infinity Shore, and Heaven's Reach are the three novels, and they really deal with the aliens there because they have to live with them. Yeah. Now, a set of novels uh, and stories that I do not recommend is, though I recommend reading them for other reasons, is the whole Retief series, <laughs> because almost every one of the aliens is a stereotypical 
ethnic subset that could be found here on Earth. Let me get my nose flute for you. Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. They, he's always running into a world that's being oppressed, and there's this native guy who talks a little funny, but he's like, you know, he's like uh, short round. Jar Jar Binks. I was thinking Phantom Menace, yeah. Very much. And I'm saying, so Retief is a great series because it's funny and it's imaginative, but it is not good aliens. Um, some of the aliens that pop up in the multi-author Bolo novels begun first by David Weber. So there's some alien aliens in that series. Not the Bolo series by, by Keith Lummer again. No, but, but others by David Weber and by John Ringo. Some of them are a collection of short stories all written by different authors. There was one where they came up against a Saurian-based alien that had a base eight number system that took everybody a little bit while to figure out what was going on. It was a They came from a mineral-poor starved system, and they came into human space to raid for metal. David Brin mentioned that he belonged to a group basically sat down and decided to build to, to create alien worlds with alien life and i can't name the name of the group uh i have to look it up is, is it on the web somewhere that's what i'm looking i'm looking in the worlds of david brin right now okay all right. all right so any anybody else got an example there's some others from the bolos to there's one that was a a species of that was basically sentient porcupines and their method of war was basically germ warfare. Precursor to an invasion by them would be something like a probe that releases various viruses in the hope that one of them would kill you. Oh, that brings to mind then um, Footfall with, herbiv- with herbivore aliens who don't understand us omnivores very well. And another one was a species of like snake men that took the long view when they invaded a planet, they they came in burrowed and then separated into family clans and they bred an army and then attacked you in a hundred years. We're, we're overlooking one of the most obvious, one of the biggest pop culture science fiction type shows. And, and they didn't do the best job of it, but they did get into the culture. And there's enough TV shows and movie references to them. You know, Star Trek did do... A fairly decent job of developing uh, some of the some of the cultures. I think I think some of it's stereotypical. You know, I mean, Klingons are uh, Klingon warriors are all warriors. The supposed noble warrior. Some they're summarize. But however, however, I have seen some episodes where they had like a uh, they had a, a Klingon who was a cook. Uh, and you would have that. You have all those roles. You, you you know maybe the Klingons we saw the ones that left. Kronos, the ones that, that you would encounter, maybe they were warriors. That we weren't seeing them because they didn't leave the planet. You know, maybe they weren't allowed to. Maybe they only sent out warriors. But the point of the matter is, is that there was enough of the culture developed for Klingons and Vulcans, and uh, if you do some of the readings, the Andorians and, and some of the uh, the um, the show Enterprise. Andorians are really kind of cool. Uh, they're one of my f- most favorite underused uh, Star Trek alien. But they get into some of those, and you can use some of those ideas from, from, from Star Trek. I think it's developed enough. I think one of the, one of the guides from, for doing space adventures through the Traveler role-playing game system advised you to develop the world first. And then once you had an idea of what kind of world, was it a water world, a desert world, a light gravity, heavy gravity, what kind of atmosphere, it would guide you towards the alien race that would develop on that style of world. I think a good book for that, and Blix and I would know of this because it was an Any Award winning book at this year's Any Awards at Gen Con, The Cobalt Guide to World Building would be a fantastic resource for making a world for a futuristic first-worthy campaign. And it's written by, like, some of the biggest current names in role-playing over the past 20 years. Yeah, you know, Trev, I haven't seen that. What, have you seen that book? No, I haven't. I haven't. I Well, heck, what they said now, you could go to a college bookstore and find it there because they're using it as a, a resource for, like, writing science fiction classes. That was something that... uh. Wolfgang Barr, who did uh, co-did Planescape, said when he accepted one of the two or three awards that they won was that when they found out it was being a college book, college course book, 
they never expected that and it blew them all away. And this was like, what was it, 15, 16 authors contributed to that book? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> if it didn't win the award, you know, I mean, come on. They had some of the best talent in the industry working on it. Yeah, but that would be a fantastic resource for world building, for making a futuristic fringeworthy campaign. If you're going to make a race up, don't focus so heavily on things like, you know, how many arms does it have and what does its eyes look like? I mean, those are important things. But what you want to you want to say, well, okay, so so when they mate, you know, is is it male and female? Is there a third sex involved? Is it, you know, does the male carry the baby in this case? Because that's going to lead you into all the cultural questions. You know, start with something very basic, very important, like how do they mate? Is one the loneliest number? Right, right. There are creatures on Earth right now that mate by fission. I mean, they basically reproduce by fission until they get into a toxic environment, and then they actually mate with another of their own kind. But see, those things, the, the how they mate, how do they eat? What do they eat? They are going to give you very strong answers as to what their society is like. For example, one of the alien things that I was developing, or I'm still developing, there's a male and a female, but then there's a third sex. So the male and the, and the female, the female provides the egg, the male provides the sperm, but the egg cannot reach maturity in either one of those two. They have to then drop it off onto a third sex. And the third sex then has the egg, and it looks different from them. It's it's physically it looks physically different from them in a lot of ways because it can it can actually carry babies, and it carries multiple ones, and it carries multiple ones from multiple different couples, and this creates a really strong sense of community because what that does is you have all these couples tied to this one third sex uh, creature, so it builds this like really super strong sense of community and it's why that race sticks together so well and why they have been able to advance so quickly those elements of that race came from how they mate it kind of reminds me of and i forget the race's name but the character flocks from enterprise how they had the multiple marriages where yeah, Phlox had like four wives and besides being married to him they all had husbands yeah yeah, so that would be another... Denubulant. Denubulant, thank you, yes. I, I hadn't seen the series in some time. That's another way that they had a very strong sense of community among themselves because of the intermarrying and... Yeah, just remind, just remind of how puppeteers, Larry Niven's puppeteers, there's two, there's technically three sexes, actually there's two sexes and the host, which is a, which is a non-sentient animal that they basically implant the larva in and it eats its way out of the, out of the, out of the host. Yikes! Well, the one I'm developing is not like that. <laughs> That's kind of gruesome. <laughs> That's kind of Cthulhu-ish. Another third sex that comes up is in the Alienation TV series, Tank Denise had the third sex that would be involved when uh, George Francisco and his wife Vesna, that was the name of the young child. If you remember the janitor at the police station, Albert, who kind of acted like he was like mentally slow, but he was of that third self with Tankton's mating. They didn't need his head. Yeah. So, you know, so there you go. I mean, there's, there's another good example, the, the aliens from Alien Nation. Well, no, no. The aliens from Alien Nation are very poor aliens, but they do have a nice three-sex arrangement, which I think would be useful when paired with some better examples of aliens elsewhere. That's my opinion. I just think they're a little bit too too human. Did you? Okay. And staying within the, the product line, uh, there's the blocks from FTL 24, 2448, which, depending which version you're reading, either have 12 sexes or six. Wow. <laughs> oh, God. And that's why they have advantage of good at bureaucracy. The ones in uh, Incursion where they're like just a big pile of sticks. I don't even know what their genders are. The, they're one of the ones that actually do parthenogenesis, which is they split into, into into two sticks and they grow and separate that way. But the, yeah, it gets sentient by the number of sticks it has in, in the pile. You know, there you go. You got that. This is a good way to, to develop aliens and develop your culture alongside. They, they kind of got to go hand in hand. The easy way of developing an alien culture, pick pick one thing, as again, as the old one thing rule, and sort of exaggerate it. 
you know, or pick something, you know, or, or take the time and research. Okay, I'm going to make a race of carnivores. I'm going to base them on house cats. You know, generate your world, and then from the premise of your world, generate a race, and then really spend some time on culture and, and maybe take two or three Earth cultures and mix them together and take out the things that are antithetical. Well, let's talk about science fiction plots then. I've come up with four categories that I, I think are the primary science fiction plots, and you guys are welcome to add to that or disagree with me. The first science fiction plot is disaster. And since we're talking fringe, where usually the disaster has occurred in the past, and we're seeing the end results of that. So we have disasters that come from space. We have disasters like asteroids hit, okay? Or we have brainwave from Poole Anderson, where what happened was that there was this gigantic mind-dampening field that covered half the galaxy, and Earth's solar system rotates out of it. Now, all of a sudden, everybody gets like a hundred times smarter than they were before. It destroys all human culture as a result. I remember they were, they were the reprints of old pulps back during the 70s. And there's one where this mysterious force swept the Earth and turned everyone into machines. I can't remember the name of the novel, but that's everyone turned into sentient robots, basically. Okay. Well, that would certainly change your McDonald's. Oh, yeah. We're really talking about things that transform a planet, okay, so that you have something radically different. And because these things are science fiction settings, they use our science fiction methodologies. I remember one great science fiction setting. An alien race came to Earth. They weren't overly hostile, but they did kind of take over the Earth. And one of the ways they got humanity to cooperate is they created groups of hive minds. Okay. You didn't have any choice about joining said hive mind, but you were put into it. Paul, we're, we're going to get to you, that thing, because that's that's the, the next group down. Right, right now we're talking about disaster, okay? So we have disaster that comes from space. We have ecological disaster. That's a That was a really big one during the 60s and 70s because we were fully expecting it to happen. It's a lot of times as a result of ecological disaster, you get a very strong Luddite aspect uh, uh, culture that results from it and for those of you who are not familiar with that that is based upon a gentleman uh back in like the, was it the 19th century i mean basically 1900s no eight, 18 actually 1800s and he basically was known for basically taking a wrench to the automated looms in england saying that this was bad and technology was bad and he got quite a following uh, behind them saying, questioning whether or not technology was really a good thing considering what they were seeing it do to their world, their landscape, their people, their cultures, the huge factory settings that grew up during the Industrial Revolution totally changed the dynamics of communities. That can come out of ecological, and then there's also the biological disasters, plagues especially. The population bomb. Too many people, or there's a plague that causes a famine, or there's a plague that changes people, or the one that kills all the women, the one that kills all the men, the one that kills everybody over the age of 18. The one that doesn't allow babies to be born. Doesn't allow babies to be born, right. There was another one that prevented cells from dividing. Oh, that's not good. That's real bad. You don't, you don't last too long like that. No. All right, so one of the things I want to talk about in this, this this leads to a lot of science fiction stories that I personally take issue with because it's just just flat out lies in the face of science. So, you know, have a disaster uh, where, I don't know, there's a nuclear war on Earth and, you know, the Earth is radiated. It's got a lot of radiation on it. And Earth moves out to one of the moons and terraforms it or goes to Mars and builds a base there. And it's like... I get it. I get where they're coming from with the storyline. They're trying to come up with an excuse to, to build a base on Mars and have people live there. But the problem is terraforming anything in our solar system is going to be so much harder than just fixing anything that we could do to Earth. I mean, if you could terraform Mars, you could just re-terraform Earth and clean up whatever happened to it. it and you would be able to do it 
a billion times easier. So that is not a good excuse. I don't like that excuse, and I think it's lazy writing. Unless it was a plague that was so bad that the chance was really good that if you landed back on Earth, you'd just die. Okay, so so what would have to happen with that is is that you would already have to be planning or you would already have to have that colony built to pull something like that off because this plague is going on. You're not going to develop technology to be able to do that. Not going to happen. And if you could, if you had the time to develop that technology, then you're probably safe wherever you are. Adam Warren version of uh, the Dirty Pair is comic book series where the nanoclaps ha- happen. Nanobots that pretty much converted the entire surface of the Earth into one big nanomachine. Okay, so in that case, it's not that they just can't live there. They are escaping a hostile element that is going to eat everything that stays. I'm okay with that. If you want to say, oh, that's why we had to leave the Earth, because the Earth, the Earth actually became antithesis to life. But if you're escaping because of radiation, you have no clue how much radiation Mars gets bomb- bombarded with all the time. You have no clue what the moons around Jupiter, what kind of radiation they get bombarded with consistently. You're not escaping radiation. And they get like one hundredth of the light. That's just lazy writing. Come up with a different reason. They would have space stations and they would have the moon cannibalize everything that was there and move to Mars because it was slightly less inhospitable than than the moon. And that is saying something. And that is saying something. Actually, as the, the basis of the plot for Cowboy Bebop, they built these uh, transit gates to travel to travel to the to the to the solar system from Earth to Mars, Jupiter, out to Saturn, and these and the transit gate at Earth broke. And part of breaking, it caused the moon to explode. And basically, the Earth is being pelted by bits of moon on a regular basis. So, yeah, no one lives on Earth anymore. They live everywhere else. Well, see, in that case, it makes sense because, like, living on Earth is is more dangerous than trying to live on Mars because you could get hit with a big friggin' rock. Peter has a point, and I think I think all of our, our people who are writing adventures should definitely keep that in mind. What's that stellar event where it's the X-ray pulse? Yeah, that's that's disaster from space, yeah. Yeah, gamma ray burst. Or the one where a um, what is it a, a neutron star decides to romp, romp its way into our solar system. They did a whole Nova series on that. Oh yeah, that's not good for us. It's a dying star, and when it collapses, it doesn't explode outward in all directions. It it explodes and focuses itself like a laser beam. And if you just happen to be unfortunate enough to be in the direct path of that, everything on one side of your planet gets burnt off. It's either going to collapse into a neutron star or into a black hole. And in the process, it's, as it spins down, everything will come off the magnetic pole of that star. And whichever way that mag- magnetic pole is pointing, that's where the, the beams are, the rounding beams of death are going to go, basically gamma rays or X rays. And they're deadly out to about 100 light years. And there happens to be one sort of kind of pointing at Earth right now. Yeah, but, but, but John, small beam, big sky. It's a good thing. Okay, so moving on to our next SF plot, Invasion. Oh, yeah. We have Invasion from the Past, which is what they're doing a television show right now on with the dinosaurs. Oh, primeval. Past and future. Knights on horseback are not going to threaten the, the present, okay? But if all of a sudden you started getting, like, you know, portals opening up over the planet and, and major carnivores started pouring through and you couldn't stop it, then that could be a major problem. I wouldn't worry too much about T-Rexes. It's all the raptors that come through I would worry about. It's the little guys that attack in packs. You betcha. No, it's what's that period in Earth where we're swarmed with bugs? And it's the super oxygenated Earth where the bugs, where you have a four-pound wolf spider? Oh, no, where you have a centipede that's about six foot long. Trouble is, it needs that super oxygenated Earth to live. They pretty much would be like some guy, you know, who's who's missing his tank of oxygen without it. <laughs> Unless, of course, when those portals open, it also dumps a whole lot of oxygen into our atmosphere. Oh, that would be fun. The, the fires that would result from that would be spectacular. See? Disaster as a result of invasion. Yeah, right. Every lightning event was a ball of fire. As soon as you said four-pound wolf spider and how big was the centipede? Six foot? 
It, it can't be six foot wide. It's got to be really skinny, though. It could be six foot long. Yeah. That's fine. Okay, uh, whatever. Uh, that's it. That's reason enough to move to Mars. I'm good. I'm out. <laughs> the short story by Stephen King, The Fog, not the movie. I hate that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the story, all kinds of critters that just start coming out of nowhere and eating people. Oh, man. They made a movie of that, Stephen, or the Stephen King version of that. No, and I hated it. It was off. It was entirely driven by the stupid plot, okay? Everybody in the whole movie was an idiot, and they kept making things worse. Yeah, it's up there. I, I could not watch the, 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 the one that was based on The Sound of Thunder. Some invasion, right? Well, let's talk about the reasons, because this is going to be your story-driving story element. Why? Why would anything invade us? Well, first of all, nobody's going to because if you can develop the energy, put the resources together and move across the galaxy, you can build a home anywhere. Unless it's really easy to do. I mean, the only thing Earth has to offer that you really can't find on, on, uh, on asteroids and so forth is life. Water. Water and chem minerals that are only made in the presence of water. Other than that, there's not much reason to come down and start taking women and going back to Mars with, unless, of course, that's what you do. Okay, so there's two reasons for invasion. One is that you're basically expanding out and you're taking over territory. I mean, you're, the colony ship shows up. The generation ship shows up with 100,000 aliens. And, hey, yeah, they had a planet that they left. That planet was getting full up. They wanted a new planet. They moved to a new planet. And they also went larger borders because there's another galactic culture out there they're trying to beat out. You know, they're trying to grow faster than the other galactic culture. I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons, I think, for invasions other than just Mars needs women. Yeah, yeah, the generation ship that pulls into Earth Earth orbit, I mean, that's been done a couple of times. Uh, actually, very well in footfall. And, and by the way, I, I think I think there's a firm tradition of the fact that our women are hotter than any other species that are out there. Except in Piper's books, the Freean women are actually hotter than Earth women. You mean H-Beam Piper? H-Beam Piper, yes. I haven't read those. Of course, humans are all Martians, but that's okay. Yeah. Let's break it down. So we have... Uh, aliens coming here because they are, let, let's say, they're escaping their world for whatever reason. Either they're being oppressed by another race, maybe another race wiped them out and they had to leave and they come here so they wipe us out or they try to wipe us out. Plots of both Alien Nation and District 9, they were a slave ship. Why? I don't know. And they basically crashed in our world. They, they also show up because they're evangelists. Oh, they want to convert us. They wanted to perpetuate their culture. Hello, we're representatives of the Galactic Federation, and we just noticed you've achieved usable spaceflight. Hi, we're here to say hi and give you the cards and say, stay where you are. Right, or there's, you know, we're, we're a threat. It's a preemptive strike. It's like, oh, you've, right, you've made it to space. Now we're going to blow you up. It's like, wait a minute, what, what did we do? Oh, it's not what you did. It's what you might do. Or your planet is being removed to make a new hyperspace expressway. <laughs> I was going to go there, Paul. You beat me to it. I think it was Discovery Channel or Science Channel, one of the two, did this uh, three-part uh, documentary on alien invasions. And their alien invasion was basically the aliens dropped spores, nanomachines, and changed human DNA so that eventually, within a couple generations, we'll be aliens. Right. We'll be like them. Or, no, we'll be a hybrid of them. We'll be still human, but we'll also be alien. They didn't change our DNA completely. They just changed it enough that after several generations, we'll have people who will not be human, but they won't be alien either. They'll be alien-human hybrids. Well, think about this. Okay, so you already, you guys all know that there's there's parasites that get in things like ants, there's the fu parasitical fungus that gets in ants, changes their behavior. There's a plasmodius something or other, whatever it's in. It's the it's stuff that's in cat boxes that. Dad, thing. That's it. Yeah, changes changes mice, makes mice less afraid of cats, which works in the cat's favor. Imagine you're going to invade this world. You're this alien creature. You're going to invade this world. And you see the planet with a fungus that um, makes the people amenable to what you want. So you show up, and they're not afraid of you. As a matter of fact, they'll want to do whatever you want, the, want them to do because they love you because they don't even realize they've been infected with something that is making them like you. And then 
there's where your story comes in. Fringeworthy arrive. They have not been affected by this stuff. Or, or we're different enough that the fungus won't affect us. Right, right. Okay, good. That's a good point. It, we, it has been bioengineered for us, so it won't work on us. And that's that would be a great Fringeworthy story because you're like – the characters, you know, they come to realize that's part of the mystery. That's part of the adventure. You, you write it so that they discover what's going on. And then Ided is like, well, what do we do? I mean we got this – got the human race and these aliens are extracting all kinds of whatever they want from them. Um, and they are being controlled. They don't even know it. So that would be a great adventure. They happily walk into the biohoppers because there's, there was too many babies born this year. Anybody read uh, the sequel to Ender's Game, Speaker for the Dead? It's like book two. And in that, Ender's moved on to another world where nobody knows who he is. He can, he can be incognito. And there's another race on this planet as they're trying to terraform it. Part of it was interesting where they're trying to terraform a planet and they have to keep creating new Terran strains of things to compete with local fauna for for territory. But there's another sentient race on the planet and they have a big deal where this these aliens killed a human being and they had to figure out why. And it turns out that the aliens don't consider that that they killed this human being because they have a symbiotic relationship with one of the ants forms of plant life. Their motor center is, is like slit and they're put into the plant and they become part of the plant. So they did the same thing to a human thinking it was an honor. They were honoring this human, this great person by joining him with the plant and the human settlers saw it as murder. Nice. And at the same time, Ender's, Ender's uh, harboring a queen of the alien species that he almost eradicated. Yeah, he's got a queen he's talking to, and he's trying to you know, make the queen understand human beings. The other invasion that they've done a number of times is invasion from the future, from us. Our far future, we go back in time because they don't like how the future ended up. Or B, their future is a dead end and they want to go back, you know, they've done something to their own planet and destroyed it, so they're going back to the past and to, to inhabit it. Let's see, Millennium, the movie? Oh, then it was a, two versions of the same, same concept in B movies. It was uh, they had a time gate, they went forward in time, and then they realized they need to go further forward in time to get to the, to the, to the Utopia. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like World Without End. Yeah, that was it. World Without End. Yeah, that was it. Yes. They went forward in time by accident, and that put them after a, a nuclear holocaust. And, and things turned out really badly. The, there were mutants and pure strain humans. And finally, at the end of it, things got really bad. And they said, well, the only thing we can do is try to go even further in the future. And so they jumped forward about 10,000 years, and then it was all everything had regrown properly. There was no more radiation, and it was a brand new future for them all. Of course, there was only about 10 of them. So not a very good breeding stock, but hey, that was the fifties. They didn't worry about things like that. Uh, uh, May's Pleistocene series was about a alien race that had come to Earth back in the time of the dinosaurs. But in the future, human beings had figured out time travel and decided to dump all of their undesirables back into the Pleistocene era to you know to get rid of them. And so all of a sudden, the, these aliens who were all alone yeah. <laughs> in the dinosaur world suddenly have all these miscreants showing up. Silurians, no. And yeah, hilarity ensues as we have some serious culture clashes going on. And they throw in a whole bunch of stuff like, you know, elves and magic. They dude it up as psionics, but it was basically magic and stuff like that. It was a lot of fey type creatures. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games.
And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts. Cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.